Here we have the St. Michael singers and all glory, Lord, and honour to thee, Redeemer King. Continuing our series on John Wesley and Methodism, Melvin Bragg talked to three experts on the history of Methodism, 
Erin White, Stephen Plant and William Gibson. Today they look at different ways of salvation, either by doing good works or by faith in Christ. And they also look at the importance of women in the church. Calvinism, Erin, uh, began to played a big part in this. The idea that some people were the elect from before birth even, and they were the chosen. How did that fit in, in your view, to Methodism? Of course, this was a a brand of Methodism because um, in the very early years, of course, Whitfield and Wesley and the Welsh Methodists and some of the Moravians all felt they had a lot in common and they wanted to pool their resources. But certainly by around 1740, 1741, they were starting to find out they also had differences. And one of the main differences was about the path to salvation. Was it Arminian, as the Wesleys advocated, or Calvinist? Um, What did Arminian mean to people then? that time the basis goes back to jacobus arminius in the 17th century but that was um basically the idea that salvation came through effort through good works through striving for perfection and could be attained yes whereas of course the calvinist theology was um argued that basically humanity was sinful and could never really attain salvation for itself so the only path was through having faith in god's grace and you know god's um irresistible grace would then atone for the elect um and of course this was always in a way acceptably acceptable as part of anglicanism the anglican church did not rule out calvinism by any means um so moderate calvinism was adopted by the Welsh Methodists and also by George Whitfield and the Countess of Huntington in England. So it was a different strand. William? It seems to me that Arminianism, one of the attractive aspects of Arminianism, is that it appears to be almost democratic. It opens the possibility of salvation to anybody um, as long as they're prepared to believe and undertake good works. And this seems to me to be a very attractive aspect of Methodism in the 18th century. It's not class-orientated, it's not not economically orientated, uh, it's open to everybody if they have the will and the faith. Um, And this, as I say, seems to me to be a very attractive aspect to ordinary working people. Could you develop the idea that Methodism took root in places that the Anglican Church had, A, rather neglected, and places that were new to the geography of the country, i.e. industrial centres. I mean, first of all, took root, as I understand it, in London and in Newcastle and Bristol, that triangle, but kept hitting industrial centres, and, as it were, the neglected artisans and poor. How much truth is there in that? Well, there's some truth in that. Certainly Wesley's triangle between London, Bristol and Newcastle. Um, These are places that saw the growth of um, urban working uh, working classes and certainly his preaching did very well in the new industrial areas uh, we've mentioned Kingswood already where uh, there was a big mining community uh, the other place which we ought to mention of course is Cornwall where the tin miners uh, were part of that industrialization of the west country uh, and Cornwall became a bastion of of Methodism uh, and certainly later on in the century, the Northwest, again, uh, an industrial area, uh, was very strongly uh, a stronghold of Methodism. Wesley was certainly less successful in rural areas. Um, in Hampshire, he uh, referred to the people as dead, dull stones because they were so unresponsive to his message. 
But another part of this pattern was that he sometimes did fairly poorly in areas where Protestant dissent and other forms of nonconformity were strong. So, for example, in Somerset, uh, Wesley recorded that he was sometimes pelted with stones and mud. Stephen, if you were a Methodist, were you still expected to go to the Anglican Church on a Sunday? That was certainly John Wesley's expectation. And uh, initially, that seems to have been the case. But um, the movement did take on its own personality fairly quickly. And eventually, Wesley um, had to come round to to thinking about ways in which he might think about his movement as something that was going to outlast him, outlive him. And um, late in life began to take legal steps, for example, to protect the personality, the legal personality of the movement, um, which begin to make it into a separate church or denomination. So you, it's it's a decades-long, slow breakdown of relations between uh, Methodists and Anglicans. It was never a relationship which completely broke down, however, even into the 1750s, sorry, 1850s. Um, the Book of Common Prayer was still wide, widely in use in Methodist chapels. Um, so the, the breakdown was not ever as sharp as you might think. So how was it, Mark? He, did, did the fact that Wesley started to ordain people as bishops, uh, 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 took on himself to do the, to ordinations, just bypass bishops? Okay, so that, that was one of a series of steps towards the end of his life he took. The other was to give, as I said, the legal personality to his conference to set up um, his group of preachers as uh, essentially a collective governing body for the new movement. But a, certainly a big step uh, occurred in 1784. Um, I should, we should, it's a good point to, rem- to go back to America, actually, in our thinking, because the, the, the um, independence of America in 1776 had been a big shock to Wesley, who'd been a, who was a big supporter of the Hanoverians and had written, again, to, written to the colonists um, in support of uh, loyalty to the crown. He, his piety was then still respected among American Methodists. His uh, status as father of the church was unchallengeable, but he became a practical obstacle. And so in 1784, when he sent a couple of presbyters who he ordained, and he also ordained as superintendent of the American church, uh, his colleague Thomas Cook, um, they then uh, commissioned a th- a f- another man, Francis Asprey, as a kind of co-superintendent, who convened a conference in Baltimore in, at Christmas in 1784, um, which uh, democratically elected him as bishop against Wesley's advice. And really, that's the moment at which the American Methodist Church becomes independent of British Methodism. Erin, um, records we appear to see in the records that. Uh, women uh, outnumber men two to one in Methodist and Methodist churches. Uh, what's your reaction to that? Well, in some ways, of course, that's not unusual for minority religions. There's a common pattern there where women are often in the majority in emerging or minority religious movements. And one of the reasons put forward for that sometimes is that, of course, since they didn't often have a public or civic role, they had less to risk. So, for instance, as a dissenter in this period, you couldn't go to university, you couldn't hold public office. Well, if you're a woman, you couldn't do that anyway. So for some, in some ways, you could say women were slightly more free to follow their conscience. 
But of course, in addition to that, Methodism specifically did offer them much more of an opportunity to contribute because of the emphasis on lay participation. So it was true for both men and women that they were expected to recount their experiences. Their conversion experiences as women was as valid as those of men. Their day-to-day experiences and spiritual progress were also as valid and needed the same analysis and careful attention. And that was very rare. There were very few opportunities in this period for women to hear their own voice, to have an opportunity to speak, even if it was in a, you know, a, a semi-private forum of the societies. We shouldn't overstate this, of course, because it wasn't revolutionary in terms of giving opportunities for women. Most of the leadership roles went to men and only very few women were allowed to preach in the 18th century and they had to be quite exceptional. Um, one of the earliest we know, know of um, was Elizabeth Thomas in Wales in 1741. But by 1771, John Wesley was persuaded to allow Mary Bosanke to preach him um, because she was said to have an extraordinary call. Melvin Bragg with Erin White, Stephen Plant and William Gibson. Now for a hymn by the brother of John Wesley, Charles. He's the one that wrote the hymns. This is Muddy Pryor with... And can it be that I should gain? I walk 
one of the best known of Charles Wesley's hymns and can it be a good song for Holy Week I suggest The notice board looks a bit different this week here's Ginny Wilkie to start us off We have received this message from Liz Baker Rector of Holy Trinity Episcopal Church in Pitlochry The Easter Journey with Highland Perthshire Linked Charge 15 striking images curated to bring to life the journey to Easter. This tradition of the Stations of the Cross, a practice used by Christians since the 15th century to help them to walk in Jesus' footsteps through the events of his last days, continues to be used as a way of remembering Jesus' journey and embarking on our own. Come to the grounds of these beautiful Highland Perthshire churches to contemplate the images and consider how they speak to you. What about them resonates with you? Do they make you ask questions or want to take action? Each station is accompanied by a reading from the Bible and a traditional prayer. You may wish to add your own prayers, telling God what the images evoke for you. Visit the grounds of these beautiful churches to contemplate, meditate and pray using these remarkable images of the events leading to Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection to guide your own journey. You can also begin the Easter journey both in the grounds of the four churches and on Facebook, daily including Easter Sunday. We've also included QR codes, which, when scanned with a QR reader app on your mobile phone, will take you to YouTube videos of music you might find helpful on your journey. So you can take this Easter journey at Holy Trinity Pilochri, Kilmar Vioneg, Blair Athol, St Andrews, Strathtay and All Saints, Kinlochranach. Contact Liz at email Baker at yahoo.co.uk for more information or find us on Facebook Highland Perth Linked Charge Virtual Church is The African Children's Choir with two songs Lord, I Lift Your Name on High and How Good It Is <laughs> 
song explaining why Jesus came to earth. The African Children's Choir with Lord, we left your name on high, followed by how good it is to give thanks to the Lord. Now David introduces our special for Palm Sunday. Cherith Nixon is a member of Pitlochry Baptist Church. Cherith imagines what it must have been like being a pilgrim visiting Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. 
The story of the triumphant entry into Jerusalem is so familiar, isn't it? We've all heard it as the prelude to so many Easter's over the years that the danger is we stop taking it in. So very familiar. What I want to try to do this morning is to take us back to what it must have been like actually to be there on that spring day 2,000 or so years ago. To bring it alive so that we see it and hear it afresh. Let your imaginations go. You're there, in the village of Bethphage, on the Mount of Olives. You're one of the pilgrims coming to Jerusalem for the Passover, as you do every year. You're from Galilee, from one of the little towns round the lake, Gennesaret, or Magdala, perhaps. You've rented a room in one of the houses on the outskirts of Bethphage, as you do every year. You prefer to stay here and not in Jerusalem itself, because it's quieter and cheaper up here on the Mount of Olives, and it's only a couple of miles into the city. Now, after the Sabbath day of rest, you're in no hurry to rush off down to the temple. You're lounging in the shade of the doorway of the house where you're lodging, munching a honey cake and watching the steady stream of pilgrims making their way through the village on the track down to the city. They're ambling along in little family groups, laughing, singing, quarrelling. There's an air of festivity, of expectancy. Now you see two men purposefully making their way to where a colt is tied outside a house just down the street from where you are. You've been wondering what that colt was doing tied there, almost blocking the street. The two men are loosening its rope and a group of locals arguing and gesticulating together on the street corner see what's happening. One of them calls out, Hey, what are you doing with old Ephraim's donkey? One of the two men says calmly in what you recognise as a Galilean accent, The Lord needs it. Don't worry, he'll send it back. The effect on the locals is immediate. The Lord, they say to one another excitedly. He's here then. We thought he wasn't coming to the feast at all this year. We've been looking out for him in the temple. He's been staying out at Bethany with Mary and Martha, I expect. And Lazarus. They nod together significantly. And Lazarus. The air of excitement and expectation makes you curious, so you lever yourself off the doorframe and head over to the little group gazing after the two men leading the, off the colt, which seems skittish and reluctant. What lord's this then, you ask? And they turn to you, faces animated. Jesus of Nazareth, that's who, they tell you. The teacher, the healer. Jesus of Nazareth, you say, catching the excitement. I, I know him, well, I've seen him and heard him teach when he was staying near Capernaum. Wonderful stuff. Turned everything on its head. Love your enemy. The meek will inherit the earth. I've seen him heal too. A man I knew who was blind. That's nothing to what he's done now, one of the men tells you. Now he's brought a man back to life. Dead three days he was. Dead and buried. And Jesus, he comes along and calls him out of the tomb. And out he comes, the great clothes still wrapped around him. An hour later, he's sitting in his own house eating bread and salt fish. Lazarus, he was called, a friend of the Lord's and brother of Mary and Martha up at Bethany. That's where he'll be staying now. One of them leans forward, confidentiality. 
I tell you what, we think he could be the Messiah, we do. Come to set up the kingdom of our father David again, you know, the kingdom that'll have no end. And that'll be bad news for the Romans, another says. He'll drive them out, he will. Suddenly, you're as excited as they are. You've known Jesus as a powerful teacher and a healer, and sometimes you wondered, you mean that's what he's going to do in Jerusalem? You whisper, awed, set up his kingdom? He talked a lot about the kingdom of heaven, I remember, but you think it's actually coming? Yes, one of them says, that's exactly what we do think. The high-ups won't like it, of course. Herod, the chief priest, to say nothing of the Romans, he shivers with excitement. But a man who can conquer death, nothing can stop a man with power from Yahweh like that. Come on, let's go and meet him. And we'll come back to Cherith Nixon in a few minutes. Meantime, here's Helen Shapiro with a song for Palm Sunday. It's a song written by Michael Card, picking up on the fact that Jesus was fulfilling a prophecy made by the prophet Zechariah. The title of the song is Ride On To Die.
the thorn-cursed ground will bring forth a crown, and this Jesus will seem to be beaten, but he'll conquer alone both the shroud and the stone, and the prophecies will be completed. So you grab your staff and set off up the road with them to Bethany. Passing groups of pilgrims ask what the excitement's all about, and you tell them. Jesus of Nazareth, they say. We've heard about him. Didn't he do a miracle for a great hungry crowd of people who'd gone to him preach in the wilderness? Five thousand fed, we heard. Didn't he heal that leper, that lame man, that man possessed? Soon quite a crowd is making its way up the dusty road toward Bethany, pushing and jostling in anticipation. An old man from Bethphage, stumping along beside you with a sour look on his face, mutters, He'll wish he'd chosen something else to ride on, this Messiah. Nobody's ever sat on that colt of Ephraim's before, and it's an awkward beggar. You smile at him and say, This is the man who casts out devils, remember? The old man, apparently a cynic to the core, snorts and shrugs his shoulders. And suddenly, there Jesus is, on the road, with a little crowd round him, walking towards Ephraim's colt, his hand held out. He takes its rope off the men who brought it, and they take off their cloaks and lay them on its back. It sidles a bit, nervously, and everybody goes quiet. But Jesus says something to it, and it calms down. Then he's up on its back and it stands solid as a rock. He whispers to it again and it sets off down the track, carrying itself like a Roman warhorse. The crowd go wild. Some who come from Jericho are carrying palm branches to whisk away the flies and they throw them down in front of the donkey. Others, not to be outdone, break branches from the trees by the roadside and toss them down too. One man lays down his cloak, and then another, and you're doing it too, dragging off your best cloak that your wife keeps so nice, and throwing it under the donkey's sharp little hooves. Don't worry about what you're going to wear, Jesus' voice says in your memory. Think about the beauty of the flowers by the wayside. My father gives them their clothes. You look first of all for the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom, the kingdom's coming. You're beside yourself with joy. You climb with a crowd from Bethany and Bethphage over the stony ridge of the Mount of Olives. It's the same white road you've travelled to Jerusalem on countless Passovers. The same dusty olive trees, sparrows twittering in their branches. The same kites wheeling against the blue of the sky. 
you catch a glimpse of the teacher's face and you can't quite define its expression. Jesus doesn't look excited or pleased. He looks resolute. That's it, resolute, as if something has to be done and he's going to do it. Someone starts to sing. It's the last of the Hallel praise psalms you sing at Passover. And it seems fitting because it's all about Yahweh delivering his people from their enemies. And you feel it's going to happen again. So you sing with the others, your heart bursting. Hosanna, save us now, Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He wanted so much to be delivered from the Roman yoke. No Roman grip on Jerusalem defiling the city. No Roman taxes. No puppet king like Herod. Not even a proper Jew on the throne, but a king in the line of David, a wonderful counsellor, a prince of peace, a king whose royal line will never fail and who will lead Israel to its rightful place at the head of all the nations, God's chosen people. Blessed is the coming of the kingdom of our father David, someone calls, and the whole crowd takes up the refrain. It's growing, gathering people from the wayside, absorbing pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem. The air's thick with rapture. It's coming. The kingdom's coming. Um, we've got more to come from Cherith, but meantime, here's Car Tuttle with some friends. It's a song with a one-word title, Hosanna.
Hosanna in the highest. Yes, that was Carl Tuttle and friends there. And now let's go to Cherith to continue our Palm Sunday story. The old man's still stumping along at your side, muttering. You wonder what he's doing here. Some king, he growls. Don't even have his own donkey. Had to borrow Ephraim's. Don't even have a saddle to put on it. And when did kings ride donkeys? A man in a fine cloak, walking just ahead of you, turns round. You don't know your prophets, old man, he says. Zechariah, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and bringing salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He's got a cultured voice, obviously an educated man, and you're interested. The old man drops back, discomforted, and you quicken your pace to walk beside the one who seems to know what's going on. Not a prophecy about the Messiah, you ask, wishing you'd paid more attention in shul. Hmm, he says and frowns, and he knows it. I wonder what he's doing. The Lord? What do you mean? Well, it's not like him tolerating all this noise and acclamation. I've been watching him for some time now. He does everything quietly. Look at where he chooses to do most of his teaching. In little towns, often obscure places at the back of beyond. And sometimes he tells those he's healed to keep it to themselves. My people tell me the crowds tried to make him king before, but he took himself off into the hills away from them. Even so, he's upset our illustrious leaders. So, what's he doing now? Riding down to Jerusalem like a conqueror. Because that's what this is like, you know. The kind of triumphant march through the streets Romans give their conquering generals. I've seen one once in Rome. Oh, this is a poor man's version with cloaks and branches from wayside trees thrown down instead of cloth of gold and myrtle and rose petals. But that's definitely what it's like. You don't like to tell your new and learned friend you don't know what he's talking about. So you just ask... Don't you think it's true that he's coming to Jerusalem to drive out the Romans and to become a king, king like David was? The man looks at you for a moment and then says slowly, I don't know. I really don't. He's going to do something in Jerusalem. There's no doubt about that. And he's made sure that every eye is going to be on him when he does it. Well, what it's going to be, I don't know. You're not listening properly. Because you've reached that bit of the road where you always have to stop. As you crest a ridge, the whole of Jerusalem on its two facing hills is spread suddenly out before you across the Kidron Valley. You can see inside the walls all the honey-coloured houses and shops and the little dark alleys between them. You can see the vast temple in all its glory of white marble and gold standing proud in the concentric circles of its massive courtyards. You can see the defilement of the Roman stadium built so close to the temple walls that the noise of its crowds cheering on their favoured gladiators or chariot teams drowns out the songs of the priests and the blasts of their silver trumpets. You can see the bulk of the Antonia fortress with its four great towers where the Roman soldiers are drilling and you can see the sunlight glinting on their spears. You turn to your new friend. He has no army, no weapons, you say. Does he need them? 
Does he need anything except the power that's in him? If he chooses to use it. You shake your head and take up the chant again. Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And you march with a shouting crowd down the hillside, over the bridge spanning the Kidron Valley, and past the lovely little garden of Gethsemane. And as you descend, the view of the city is lost, engulfed by its own towering walls. And that's our programme for Palm Sunday. We'll leave you with Graham Kendrick and Make Way, Make Way. Make way, make way. Make way, make way. For the King of Kings. For the King of Kings. Make way, make way. Make way, make way. For the King of Kings. For the King of Kings.